And what that's doing is actually giving people who actually would never have done any research before, what they would have done is make it up or make assumptions or, you know, just relied on someone's opinion. They're actually using that synthetic model to inform decision-making in a way that they you know, wouldn't have been able to before. So I think it's likely to enhance or grow the total share of decisions that are supported with data, even if that data is generated from a language model rather than primary research. Now, if you want a succinct but very knowledgeable summary on research tech trends, potentialities, and also challenges, there's one person you should really be talking to, Mike Stevens. Mike is the founder and editor of Insights Platforms, before which he ran Vision Critical in the UK. He also did some unusual other jobs and managed to survive a bit of Saturday night violence in his youth. You'll find out what I mean. But perhaps more pertinently, when I wanted someone to give me the rundown on the latest in synthetic data, I couldn't think of anyone better than Mike. As he describes it, synthetic data can mean multiple things. But in simple terms, within the context of the insight space, we can think of it as artificially generated data that can stand in for data you might otherwise generate by primary means. So surveys, qualitative interviews, and other well-known techniques. It's a big subject and one that's going to become increasingly important in terms of replacing, or possibly more likely, supplementing other methodologies. So onto the interview with Mike. So Mike, firstly, thanks so much for joining today. Really great to see you again. Good to see you, Henry. Thanks for thanks for having me on the on the podcast. Not not at all. Well, I'm going to pick your brain on all sorts of interesting areas, as as you know. Before we get onto those, though, could we do the traditional icebreaker? And what's one thing most people wouldn't know about you, or they might find surprising? So something they wouldn't necessarily be able to find out just through a, a quick web search or something like that. Uh, well, I, I once worked as a bin man, as a refuse collector. <laughs> uh, not many people would know that, but it was a it was a one day job, um, and they didn't ask me back. I thought I did it quite well, but um, they didn't ask me back. What's What's interesting? Um, I guess I I actually grew up in the Middle East and in Africa, which a lot of people don't really know. Um, and I went to boarding school, which is a consequence of that. So. Um, uh not really your typical boarding school type people are usually surprised when i tell them that but um no growing up in the you know in the middle east in the 80s in africa it was um you know real eye opener it was i think probably instilled a bit of an international perspective i didn't really listen to news that wasn't on the bbc world service uh, until i was uh, maybe about 12 years old so um uh yeah definitely helped broaden I mean, perspectives but- i think yeah, both of those are really, really interesting. I mean, I, I have. Some, I'm glad you didn't remain as a, as a bin man. I think you know, the insights <laughs> world would have lost a, a great resource and a great mind. Uh, where did you go to boarding school? Was it in Africa or was no? It, it was in Middle East. Uh, sorry, it was in it was in the glorious city of Wakefield, which is about ten miles south of Leeds. For those of you who uh, are international listeners, and was at one point renowned as the most violent city in the UK for Saturday nights out, um, which uh, I hope is no longer the case. But uh, yeah, was certainly a lively environment. Well, I'm sure you didn't contribute to any of that. <laughs> Not that I remember. <laughs> now, the focus of the interview, moving on from that, is really about two key areas that are potentially interlinked, synthetic data and conversational survey software. But I also want to get a bit of personal background as well. So let's not start at the beginning because that's way too obvious. Let's start with where you are now in Insight Platforms. So why did you set it up and what's the goal? Uh, well, I do have to work backwards a little bit. I suppose the Insight Platforms has been live for about five years now. And 
I I set it up because I was working as an independent consultant and advisor. Anybody who's done that knows that it's hard work. And I was looking for another angle to the business that could be a bit more stable, predictable. If I'm honest, I was looking for something I thought might be easy passive revenue. So I thought if I if I create a directory website for this growing area of, of research tech, there'll be, you know, lots of affiliate click revenue that will just land in my bank account automatically. And um, you know, of course, uh <laughs> you have to work incredibly hard to get easy money. And um so it didn't doesn't work like that. So I, I needed to generate, build an audience, generate content to to attract an audience and the the different formats of content, I guess, blog articles, ebooks, um, you know, webinars, virtual events, that's all really grown from that, trying to connect the the two sides of this industry, the the kind of research, digital, really, research providers, tools and data providers with the audience that they want to connect with. So that's uh, what it's evolved into. And it's evolved into really an ongoing resource as far as I've been able to see. And we were talking about it just beforehand. So on one side, it's a directory, which is great, but, but there are also a lot of training resources on there as well. Yeah, there are. I mean, I think for, I guess I think of it in, in two halves. It's really, it's a marketplace between providers of tools and knowledge and an audience of people who want to use those tools or, or gain some knowledge. So people are coming to the site. I mean, it's, you know, it's it's about 30 odd thousand people a month are coming to the site to take a training course to watch videos to see demos of software to join in webinars read stuff download stuff so there's a lot of information resources but the directory of tools is is probably one of the biggest um highest traffic areas because there's nearly 1500 companies that are listed in there it's a very diffuse collection of you know market research consumer insights analytics panel, data, UX research, there's all sorts of different categories in there. Um, and I think that's probably why people are coming there to discover new stuff. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. As, as I said, it's a great resource. And how does it intersect with the consultancy work? Though? I mean, do you get companies coming to you and going, Mike, this looks great, so much information in here, but I can't really be bothered to read it all myself. So will you tell me what I should be looking at? Uh, they do. And I tell them that I charge for that and they normally go away, uh, quiet, but you know, for, for mates, obviously like you, then, uh, you know, happy to give a bit of direction. Um, no, I do, uh, about probably 20% of my time now is consultancy advisory. Uh, and it tends to fall into three different areas. So, um, advice for teams or agencies who are looking to change. So it's how do they become more, uh, you know, digitally focused, what's their tech stack? How do they structure the kind of skills that they need? It's sometimes for companies who are looking for go-to-market strategy. So for a product launch, for entering a new market and, uh, you know, need help with mapping out the landscape and the, the planning around that. Or it's for in-house teams often appraising what do they have and what should they have going forward? So that might be, please review all this stuff we're spending money on now and tell us what we should be doing differently. Or we know that we need a solution for X. Can you help us to narrow down the list of companies we should be speaking to and, you know, tell us who's likely to fit our needs. So those are, those are the kind of the three buckets. Um, I warn we might diverge from the schedule, Mike, and this is kind of getting into the weeds that, but when I have got involved with businesses that are looking at creating data lakes and that type of thing, and they've got 
quite structured data in other forms of, or areas of their business. They look at survey data quite often and they go, what a bloody mess. Like, yep. how, how do we integrate that? Is, is yeah. that quite common? Uh, yes. I mean, funny you should say that, actually, because in we hosted an event last week and there's a non-profit initiative to tidy up that mess that you're describing. So it's creating consistent language for interchanging data in the survey industry it's uh, apis for the technical people how you actually get data to flow between platforms historically it's been very balkanized and it's been a mess and different providers have all had their own systems for doing things and that means that if you're an agency or if you're a, if you're a brand if you're unilever you're buying all of this different survey data from all the different companies you can't actually integrate that interchange it you can't move things between platforms so that's a solution or that's a huge challenge that a lot of people in the industry just don't perceive because they don't have your kind of perspective across data analytics and the other types of data that that organizations are trying to integrate so i I think it's a big challenge but there is an opportunity for you know for addressing that sorry what's the name of the initiative again mike so the initiative is called tsapi and it's being run by uh, matthew gibbs and tim brandwood are taking the leads on that and you can actually watch a demo there's a 10 minute demo of it on the insight platforms website which begins with live action on the clifton suspension bridge in bristol so never thought you'd see a software demo that uh, that started with live action then uh, that's your one Good stuff. Look forward to seeing that. Now, going back to the beginning, as we yep. promised we would do, how did you get into this this world? Um, and could you give us maybe kind of a little bit of a whistle-stop tour and anything you learned along the way? Yeah, okay. So, so uh, after my after my one-day stint as a as a bin man, uh, I was a student, you know. I, um, I graduated. I didn't study anything particularly useful for this industry. Well, no, that's a lie, actually. I, my degree was in... French and German literature. So I think it did give me some practical skills in terms of languages, but it also gave me some fundamental skills about decoding, interpreting, understanding to be able to apply that. So I guess I'm doing my education a disservice. But I was looking for a part-time job or a you know a, a job without knowing what I wanted to do. I started working for a tiny b2b agency in blackheath that had a small telephone unit doing interviews with telephone interviews across europe in the languages that i could speak with incredibly niche audiences so design engineers production engineers in um, companies that manufactured locomotive engines they might be for coal mines they might be for other things talking to them about their needs for cooling systems and fans that would be uh, built into their engines. So, um, like very, I'm very cracking niche. up. I'm cracking up at this point. Like, so I'm, I'm getting this vision. It's very niche, but you've done French and German literature. So what you're sort of trying to weave Moliere and Goethe into the <laughs> conversation. Uh, well, I didn't get so many opportunities for that, but it was, let's say it was a, a crash course in learning niche vocabulary for, uh, you know, for, for locomotive engine design. Um, anyway, um, and then actually did my first, joined my first research agency after working around the industry for about 10 years and went to join Research International, which was a fantastic organization, but my God, what an eye opener for how not to do things efficiently at the time. I'm doing them a great disservice now. Kantar's a, a customer. Be careful what, what not to say. But um, at the time, you know, I'd worked for these small boutique consulting firms. You know, you'd be 
getting data, you'd be working with it the night before and pitching up and, you know, making, let's say, confident uh, assertions off the back of the data you'd got. In this organization, you know, there were reams of departments printing out stacks of, you know, tables of data, other people would be responsible, and nobody would actually make a commercial recommendation off the back of it, you know, so it was a, I was for the first few months, I was like, what the hell have I joined? Um, but it was, in some ways, we, we had an agency within an agency working for the the agency's biggest client. So Vodafone at the time, you remember telecoms was huge in the early 2000s. So we actually built some very different ways of doing things using technology. We pioneered a lot of methods that then got adopted elsewhere in the business. Um, yeah. And then I left about, where are we now? 2010, something like that. Joined a, a Canadian software company called Vision Critical, which was a pioneer in the kind of communities, panels space, building lots of private audiences for retailers, media companies to be able to do research very quickly and, um, you know, get uh, uh, in-depth insights from their own customers or audience members. And uh, that was um, alternately infuriating and enjoyable and uh, rewarding, but ultimately I ran out of steam with that. Um, with a kind of mini midlife crisis, not really knowing what I wanted to do next, expecting someone to come and offer me an amazing job. And when they didn't, I had to start, you know, scrounging around for, for consulting and advisory business, which is really where this part of the, the, the story starts. Yeah. Good. Well, th thank you, Mike. That, that is a really good whistle stop tour. The, the point that you made about RI and then later Cantar, and this isn't about, you know, Cantar, by the way, at all, but it does seem that that is still there's still a preponderance or, or how can I put it? The industry sometimes seems to be kind of caught between two stools still around that around. We're all about the data. We'll only give data based recommendations mm -hmm. um, that we could, that are statistically significant and so on and so on. We've got how many pieces of evidence to back them up. And that is our job. We are going to report that, that data and we'll give you very, very logical recommendations, but which sometimes aren't that interesting. They almost seem a little bit obvious. Um, yeah. And they don't necessarily take into account broader business kind of context. Do you, is, is that fair? Would you say, do you think? I think it's totally fair. I think it's, I think it's an issue that afflicts the majority of advisory businesses in the research and insight space, which is you asked us to go and investigate this. Here's the data that we got. Here's what the data is telling you. And for an awful lot of people, it makes them tear their hair out. And they say, well, what about X, Y, Z? You've got no context of our organization. You've got no competitor landscape. You've got no real advice or opinion in there. So I think, you know, the evidence, you know, or opinions with evidence, I think, are, you know, lacking. I think there's a, uh, there is a mindset that I hadn't encountered because I'd, I'd, I'd worked in consulting for the first 10 years of my career. When I came into the research industry, I was surprised at the reticence. Uh, you know, incredibly bright people, very respectable. And you've only got to see the the way that people get crucified when polling is off to understand where a lot of that legacy lies, you know, and particularly in organizations that are buying research for consumer innovation and advertising, you've got big opinions in marketing and commercial teams who will shout at researchers if, you know, if numbers are a little bit off. So we've built this culture of methodical uh, safeness. And I think that is a little bit dangerous for where the industry needs to go next. I'm not saying we should jettison any of that respect for methodology and data and quality and any of those things, but there is 
a challenge in the personality and culture of people who need to be leading from the front and advising and saying, this is what we do. It, it, there are some great exceptions to that. There are some really very strong um, consulting-led, advisory-led businesses in the industry, but they're the exception. You know, It's not really the broader culture still of the insights business. So like, you have a great perspective in that you've got this repository of information. You work with a lot of uh, different companies. So maybe this is an unfair question, but based on what you've seen, what are the common denominators of companies that succeed in the insight space at the moment? What what, what characteristics do they um, imbue? Can I answer the question in a different way to start with? Can I tell you what the uh, the three characteristics of companies that are doomed to fail or the bad habits that I see uh, before going on to the good stuff? Because yeah, yeah you know you I do love, see a lot of bad habits. Um, you know you don't you don't necessarily see all three of these things in the same place but you know i think i've seen a lot this is not unique to the insight space this is probably more about our current culture of um vc-led funding for technology promises so you know when you see a company that believes that getting its funding round is really its goal you know that believes that it's been successful because it's found investment um you know, that in itself is not the goal. The goal is to build something and generate value for customers. But I think we've we've managed to create this lens through which an awful lot of startups and founders see, you know, the the funding round as the badge and that they've achieved this amount arrived if they've been funded. And uh, that's problematic for me. I think the second thing flows from that is I worked for a company that made the fundamental error of pivoting its energy towards pleasing its investors away from doing the right thing for customers. And you would think those two things should be aligned. You know, if you're going to deliver value for investors, you're doing it right for customers. It's not the case at all. What it means is you start focusing your energy on gerrymandering the way that numbers are presented. You start telling customers that, you know, the thing that they've been doing, they can't do. You hire the types of people that look right from an investor an investor or advisory perspective and don't actually work for for customers so that's a challenge i think um and the third thing that makes me really suspicious of companies is when they say uh everything that's been done in this industry historically has been crap and here is the new way and this is the only way and you know it it's almost like a kind of evangelical uh you know <laughs> make research great again kind of mission and it's it's um i'm very very suspicious of those people those companies that are you know with the revolution and everything else is terrible so um those kind of three characteristics i think are big red warning lights to me yeah, um, I, think I think they're very fair mike i mean the third one is probably related to the first one as well in the sense that well they're all interrelated but yeah particularly because in order to get your funding You've got a pitch for a big market, and so yeah. on like, and so on, and claim that you're transforming it. The second one's interesting too, in that how do you think companies can then balance this desire to kind of create a product if they want to create a product, which a lot of them do, with still pleasing customers and but not pleasing customers in the sense that you're constantly changing your products and providing custom deliverables or or changing necessarily your your data structure. I think that's the thing a lot of businesses wrestle with in this space. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I mean, do you know what? I think it does come back to the thing you just said, which is in order to 
secure the funding that you want, you actually have to create a story pitch, which is bigger and more dramatic and faster to value than actually the market's going to support. So you've already sold your soul to the devil by the time the check has landed because you've made promises that you could never keep. So investors are always going to be like, hang on, you said, you know, that this was going to happen by then, you know, understandably, they start to put pressure and they say, you've not got the right sales profile, you've not got the right pitch, you know, and all of those things. So I think it, it's it's very bound up in the nature of, um, you know, expectations around funding and the pace at which value is going to be delivered and the overall scale of the opportunity. Because, you know, when I think about um, the number of startups, the number of funding pitches and promises that are being made, this industry just isn't big enough to support all of them, no matter how big, you know, you look at it top down, any which way you cut it, there just isn't that kind of opportunity. So they start to define all these adjacent market spaces, lose focus on the real customer, you know, and it, it becomes a bit kind of self-defeating. Yeah, very much so. Um, hopefully, I'm not involved with those businesses. We try to <laughs> encourage them not to take that particular attitude. Mike, I'm conscious of time slightly. I'm, I'd love to just pick your brain and go back through your, your past history. Yeah, I didn't tell also, you what the good things were, did I? We didn't. We yeah. didn't actually talk about the three, uh, the three on, positive let's, signs. All let, let's is, hear about. Let's hear about good <laughs> stuff too. You know, I think they're to. probably they're probably inverted. I so um, you know, there's there's something fundamental actually about you know build something that people want. Uh, you know, so there's a you know product market fit, whatever it is, build something useful. You know, there's a there's a kind of fundamental component of that, which might be a new way of doing things. It might actually just be a better way of things you've been doing already. That's a kind of foundation thing, obviously. Um, but then I think there's a there's a lot of value attached to doing the basics, right? You know, so providing continuous sort of service, providing the right level of skill to support technology on top of it, helping customers, you know, showing up and just doing the boring stuff every day. And I think, you know, it's companies that the third thing for me is about aligning value with customers. So you need to, you do need to hire the right people. You need to get people who are going to speak the language of the customers. You need to um, blend services and expertise with technology and product in the right kind of mix. You know, some of this is not very um, SaaS uh bible you know but accept that you know you're not always the answer acknowledge when your product doesn't actually do the thing that customers are trying to do don't you know hammer a a, a round peg into a square hole and say you know we're not the right solution for that and i think you know those are those are some of the attributes that i see in successful companies in this space yeah again they make a lot of sense to the third area that you're describing as well I'm involved with one company. Um, it's a German company, not commercially in the insight space. But when we were looking at their model, you know, they have a, a good foundation for the business in terms of consultancy. And they're trying to create like a SaaS platform around more like the SME type of space. It's more of a D2C um, type of area. But one of the key things that we've identified is we want to keep the consultancy business and not least because it keeps you close to your clients. Mm. And it can almost act like a paid R&D engine room for you yep. so you could see what's working you can refine it kind of with your clients and then you can take the pieces that are most relevant out of that and potentially then put them into the SaaS platform yeah i think it's the i think the if you were to step back and say what is the fundamental tension for any provider in this industry any company that's delivering value to buyers 
that fundamental tension is the trade-off between expertise and product. You know, how much of your offer do you productize through technology, through data, through, you know, defined solutions? How much of it do you provide as professional services, consultancy support? It sounds like a simple trade-off, but actually it's not because those things can smear and blur together across a line. And it's a very difficult thing to say, we're going to premiumize this bit of consulting and advisory, or we're actually just going to bundle it in with the product and we're going to have it as a component of customer success. Where you draw those lines and how much you value the different components is a really difficult thing because, you know, we know investors are all looking for scalable product. Customers all want, you know, high touch services and expertise. So um, that's a, a real tension. Yeah. Yeah. An interesting tension. So getting onto this question of synthetic data, one of the yes. issues we're going to talk about. Yeah. So my, I've tried to educate myself. I've looked it up. I've read some of the things on Insight platforms, which are good. But so many different people have described synthetic data in a in different ways. What is synthetic data to the extent that it is relevant to the Insights world? Yeah. Um, I think you're experience of different definitions and different um, understandings of it is because there are different ways of cutting this. So, you know, synthetic data is a monolithic term, but underneath it, actually, there's lots of different ways of achieving it. In the simplest possible terms, it is artificially generated data that can stand in for data you might otherwise collect through primary means. So an interview, a qualitative discussion, surveys, that type of thing. So in a chat GPT world, if you were to say to chat GPT, please answer the following questions as if you were this persona. And this persona is a single parent with two children struggling on the low income, trying to achieve, you know, career aspirations, that type of thing. And then, you know, the large language model will try to answer with that persona. That is the most, that is one of the simplest ways. You could get it to say, please answer as if you're suffering from hay fever. Please answer, you know, you can generate these um, personas. You can instruct the language model to, you know, adopt these personas. Now, there are many, many more sophisticated ways of doing this, and there are ways of doing it at scale. And it's not all large language model based. So there is a company called Synthetic Users that does this in a more of a qualitative persona generation way for UX research. So you'll brief it, you'll get, you know, 10, 12, 15 personas with whom you can have qualitative dialogue about your topic, your challenge, your product. At the other end of the scale, there are companies that are generating digital twin audiences that reflect you know, at the scale of, you know, thousands or tens of thousands that reflect attributes that you might find in buyers of particular products, you know, where you can then go and ask and you'll get survey type responses from them. And then beyond research and insights, synthetic data is used for all sorts of things that the kind of, you know, million case level to be able to stress test security systems or to, you know, to simulate, um, you know, how people might flow through an e-commerce site, that type of thing. But in research and insights terms, generally, large language models are generating, you know, synthetic personas, either at the qualitative scale or at the quant scale, in order for people to interact with them as if they were real respondents. There are exceptions to that, though, because 
Um, Yabble, which is a real pioneer in the space, uh, a New Zealand company, actually has a model that isn't LLM originated. The data is culled from all sorts of other third-party sources. So it might be Google, you know, trends, search data. The actual sources are kind of a secret source, so to speak. But they'll then put a, an, a language model interface so that you have a conversational interaction with the data that's been collected. So you can see there's, you know, there's different ways of generating synthetic data and working with it. Got it. Yeah. So thank you. That's a great description i actually finally began to understand at least 80 percent of it i hope anyway one of the questions though if you look not the use case for yabble how they're doing it but yep. they're synthetic users or synthetic audiences yep. so you are putting them through a user experience or you're trying to sort of duplicate a cohort of audience members but how do you how does the information then update how does the how does the dialogue remain dynamic because it sounds to me like in that case, you're you're constantly then referring back to the same LLM and admittedly learning from it and deepening the knowledge. But, it, but it's yep. almost like the, the source material is large but relatively constant. It, so I guess it depends on your brief. So, you know, yes, most of the large language <clears throat> models are trained at a point in time and are not necessarily updating on a lot of that stuff um you know in certainly not in real time but not as frequently as you might expect for a you know let's say a tracking study or something like that but in a lot of cases it doesn't really matter because the type of um input that you want is hypothesis building or testing response to a particular set of uh you know product ideas or communications concepts that type of thing so it's really about synthesizing all of that knowledge that's built into the language model that even if the training data only goes up to a few months ago it's not it doesn't require recency in the same way now that is different from the the yabble model that i described is much more recency focused and the language models are starting to build in much more uh you know longitudinal time series approaches to collecting data over time and refreshing the training data more regularly but it's a uh, you know it's probably not something that's going to happen in that way for another six or 12 months got it and are certain companies going back and validating the synthetic audiences or models against human respondents they, 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 they absolutely are and um for people whose primary business is supplying uh, survey panels and data, they should be a little bit anxious about this if that's where you know the presumptions of future revenues are you know are coming from. Because there are some companies, big companies, um, brands who you know can't really name, but who are extensively validating for different use cases, different audiences, different business questions. How do these things compare? So. You know, there's a lot of validation work going on. And I have to say, they're coming out saying, to be honest, for a lot of our needs, it's either good enough or it's kind of spookily close. So, you know, these things are, I suspect, going to really transform the way in which we work with data over the next few years. Now, the question is, is it going to grow the overall pie or is it going to substitute primary research data? I'm in the, I'm in the bigger pie camp by a long, long way because... I saw a demo yesterday, uh, and I don't know if this is really public yet, so I won't speak about it, but it's, it's, a, it's a B2B platform, which is entirely large language model-based. And a B2B company can go in there and say, give me you know, 50, 100 
personas, characters of customers who might be buyers? How do they break down? What are the segments? What are the ways in which we could sell to them? What's the relative market shares versus competitors for our brand? And the stuff is really good enough. And what that's doing is actually giving people who actually would never have done any research before, what they would have done is make it up or make assumptions or you know just relied on someone's opinion. They're actually using that synthetic model to inform decision-making in a way that they you know, wouldn't have been able to before. So I think it's likely to enhance or grow the total share of decisions that are supported with data, even if that data you know, is generated from a language model rather than primary research. And I guess hopefully you'd also use it as a foundation. I guess I would say this, but to then go find the synthetic model has got me 90% of the way there. I now know the two or three concepts that I believe are most likely to succeed. I haven't had to do my traditional quant research yep. to get to that point, but now I'll do something that's much more focused yeah. on those concepts. Yeah. I think that's uh, I think that's likely to be certainly in, you know in the short term people are going to have a lot of questions about going is this real can I trust it do I need to validate it that's going to play out you know all over at some point in the same way that you know 20 years ago people were like we can't rely on surveys that have been completed on the internet because you know they're weird the data's not right now that's not an argument you hear in many cases. In some, you know, it should be because the data is actually wonky. But you know, people have people are relying on data where we know there's, you know, broadly has validity and in some cases has serious quality problems. We'll end up in the same place. We'll have, you know, broadly trusting valid data coming out of LLMs for synthetic, and we'll have some edge cases where people never should have used that to drive a decision because the data is terrible. You know, that's just the reality of working yeah. with data. Where do you think the limitations are likely to lie? So flipping around, say, the 90% or good enough argument, yep. well, uh, are you seeing consistencies around those 10% of cases, if I'm going to use that figure, where LMMs or, or sorry, synthetic yep. data approaches yep. struggle? Yeah. yeah, I think that the recency and the time series, you know, longitudinal stuff is a is an issue right now, but I think it's going to overcome, um, you know, the, the speed with which the models are improving, real-time access to public data. You know, if you've got an LLM that's updating daily with, uh, you know, search trend data, it's got all of that stuff that's kind of feeding in, then that helps to remove that as a barrier. The thing that uh, it, broadly what I worry about is the sort of banal uh, output risk. So over-reliance on some of these things, generating knowledge or data that is ever more towards a central tendency and the eradication of interesting outliers. You know, So I've seen maybe a dozen of these tools. I've seen the outputs and things. I've yet to see anything that surprised me or made me laugh or, you know, uh, I thought was controversial, you know, so it's, it's the risk of banal. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Kind of outputs rather than anything that's, and you know, that's, I think will be where maybe some of the innovation opportunity lies is going to be in generating things that actually do have light bulb opportunities that are not just about you know okay that makes sense type responses which is potentially a very nice segue onto the conversational survey um conversation yeah. as well in terms of how you might do that so if, if we jump onto that mike i mean then then you're in an environment whereby you're actually talking to real respondents 
but you're assisting the interviewing process, as I understand yeah. it. Is that a, yeah. a fair summary? Yeah, it is. It's a kind of augmented um, survey, the way that it's being implemented right now, mostly. So I've seen more startups actually, you know, list their company on insight platforms in this category in the last little while than I have, uh, you know, in, in most other categories. And I think there's a lot are coming at this from a user and product research perspective saying, hey, you know, you can automate your user interviews. And the way the language model works is the conversational AI will ask a question that's pre-scripted. Uh, and then the AI will interpret the response and a little dig deeper. So it'll probe on the response. So there's a company that's pioneered this model called Inca. And they have actually, you know, they've got a, an API solution that now integrates with lots and lots of other survey platforms. So you can embed this approach in whatever survey tool you're using, which will be a conversational thing. So it'll be like, you know, uh, you know, why did you like um, that particular car? And it's like, well, you know, it's it's because it's got, you know, nice red paint. And it's, well, what is it about the color red that particularly appeals to you? You know, it's it's not, you know, it, it, it just helps to surface stuff beyond the obvious. Now, what that means is you get richer, longer answers. You get depth that you don't always get from the kind of, you know, totally pre-scripted surveys. You actually get more participant involvement and satisfaction with the survey. And it gives you, you know, uh, a sort of richer perspective from that open-ended data without really adding a, a, a big load of cost. To me, if you can sort of imagine a, a, a series of steps about where this evolves, you know, this is base camp, you know. So for AI-mediated research conversations, this is this is really step number one, you know. Step two, you start to get into much more flexibility around survey design. So instead of needing to pre-script and put things in boxes and grids, you know, you've got much more flexibility. But then when you start to introduce language models and personalities, what you're doing is really blurring the distinction between what's a survey and what's a open discussion, what's a qualitative discussion. Then you start to introduce things like, you know, personality into chatbots. You maybe give them into, you know, video avatars so that you've got much more interactive. What you start to have is the opportunity to do very wide, you know, large scale open discussion that's much more empathetic, that is much more focused on the actual uh, opinions of the user and participant than it is about trying to pre-box everybody into uh, you know a, a, a predefined structure the researchers put into a survey. And, and then, like, it, is there then a, a virtuous circle, if I may use that phrase, in that I can see one of the objections to it from an analytical perspective is you've got potentially quite a lot of un, relatively unstructured data because it's been more fluid. Mm -hmm. However. I imagine you can then start plugging it into various ML or AI infused analytical systems that are helping you speed up your categorizations enormously. Exactly. So, no, and these things are becoming, you know, there are some innovators in the space. So there's a, a couple of startups and, and products focused specifically on qualitative understanding, interpreting qualitative feedback. So what's happened historically is, you know, we've been able to train text analytics and, and machine learning on unstructured data that's been very wide and shallow. So you might have a thousand cases with, you know, 20 word answers. That's relatively easy to then go and code and categorize and, you know, structure. What large language models have done is, is 
enable that for narrow and deep. So you may have 10 interviews that may be, you know, 3,000, 5,000 words back and forth between an interview, lots of context needed. We've got some very good tools now to be able to analyze and understand that kind of depth. So when you scale that, you have these, you know, these big context windows now in the large language models that can start to generate qualitative insights at depth, uh, you know, and in the future at much more scale. It is interesting as you start to piece it together to see how these different pieces of tech can, you know, potentially kind of cohere together. Mike, if it's okay, I also wanted to just go back on some of the area that we were talking about before around this idea of regressing to the mean or yeah. you know, synthetic data or LLMs, whatever they might be kind of regressing to the mean. I mean, I, I think some of the areas that I've read in the past or some of the academic research around this have suggested that due to some of the factors that you're talking about, this type of analysis may be more applicable for certain categories as opposed to others. So as an example, Known brands, yes, makes a lot of sense. There's a lot of information out there. But if you've got a new product launch around um, a of an unknown brand or a spin-off from a well-known brand, then potentially it's this type of approach is less effective. Have you seen any evidence of that, or would you agree? Uh, I think it, I mean, it, I guess it depends really on what the research question is. If you're trying to understand, you know, likely response, um, then you know to a new product or a new concept that's that's not been seen before you know then you're right anything that is radically different that doesn't have a frame of reference is going to challenge this sort of model but to be honest that's always been the issue with traditional research which is people don't really understand the radically new you know they need to be kind of educated they've got to have the heuristics to place it in the context of things they know about already so i don't think that's necessarily going to be a bigger challenge for synthetic than it is for traditional research you know it's that that thing that i am going to misquote you know but these things that bezos and steve jobs and all you know would say you know you, you can't expect people to be able to tell you what they want you know you can't expect people to be able to give you a sensible view of a of a kind of radical innovation yeah that's a great point actually you know i think about it it's uh, it, it's very much uh an inhibiting factor for traditional research techniques as well. The Nintendo Wii, I've heard used as an example, quite a lot. You know, you put it through research, you're going to call it the Nintendo Wii. Everyone's like, that's ridiculous. Uh, and you get that response from traditional research techniques as well as, I'm sure, from <laughs> synthetic approaches. But a lot of it depends on the creative. Yeah. Would you say the, the other direction I've heard around this as well is that it's potentially easier for AI-infused approaches to predict failure, i.e. what isn't going to work, as opposed to what is going to work. Because, and this relates into something you just mentioned, like about that question of, like, of inspiration, that mm. quite often the things that really work in a market, particularly if they're new product launches, are those ones that are a little bit different. They're not regressing to the mean. They just do something different. No. Do you think, is that a fair comment? Are we? Is this a is this the risk of synthetic data or is this the thing that research also does more than does it you know does it does it uh, kill I, radical ideas um because it, i'd i'd it, say uh, particularly a risk of synthetic data yeah. as opposed to i think there is a risk inherent with traditional research as well however at least within traditional research you've had that more open-ended kind of qualitative forum but i, I see it as more of an issue around the, the synthetic world or the the ai predictive world Possibly you might be right. Um, yeah, I don't. I don't have a strong view, but I think it sounds it sounds sensible. Yeah, 
so Mike, thank you. I've taken up so much of your time. As usual, I'm picking your brain. I may go back with further questions too. But if it's all right, I want us to just move on to a quick far round. Sure. No problem. Okay. Slightly cheeky question, but it's one of my favorites. So what would your partner say your best and worst characteristics? <laughs> uh, best, I think she would say that um, I'm I'm loyal. I'm generally quite kind and I don't take myself too seriously. Um, I think she'd say that my worst are I can't admit when I'm wrong, I never finish anything, and I often bang my head. So I walk into things and bang my head a lot. I'm um, taller than I look when people see me on Zoom and uh, often just seem to miss cupboard doors, that type of thing. Well, the last one really isn't your fault. (laughs) Well, you could say I should pay more attention, as she often does. If you could be CEO of any company, which would it be and why? You know, they say, you know, you should never meet your heroes. And I think you should never work for companies you love because you're bound to end up uh, feeling disappointed. So companies that I love right now are uh, wise, transfer wise, just because I think they're awesome. Um, and they're a fantastic business. Um, uh, Zapier, which is just a, an incredible innovation. I know there's lots of me too's, but it's basically, you know, uh, no code automation integration. I think that for about $60, $100 a month, it saves me the equivalent of a whole full-time person. So those two are amazing businesses I'd love to work for. Um, honestly, I, I'd like to run Sterling Cooper, but, you know, that's just a little madman um, aside for people who know what I'm talking about. But, uh, yeah, yeah well, not have I, been fun. I, I do know what you're talking about. But what would you do with Sterling Cooper now? Oh, God, I'd just be having lunch and whiskey, wouldn't I? I mean, you know, we'd be smoking all the time. It'd be amazing. Oh, yeah, and you'd th- what you'd forget about like the, the synthetic data and all the rest of it. You ju- <laughs> you you just rely on on personality, creative ideas, and uh, you know supreme levels of confidence. Yeah, and John Ham's amazing hair. <laughs> uh, so maybe related. Final couple of questions. What do you know now that you wish you'd known twenty years ago? That running your business isn't terrifying. Uh, you know, I was never really. I always wanted to run my own thing, but it was never quite the right time. And I, I was never quite ready to take that gamble with a big mortgage and, uh, you know, never had a lot of capital to fall back on. So, no, I would say if you think you fancy it, do it. Um, there's no going back, you know, once you're there. So it's uh, it's great. Great advice. And what's your favorite, almost impactful book or recent book? Could be a bit of media. doesn't have to be a book. Uh, honestly, I'm, I'm a little bit obsessed with the state of the world right now. So... Um, Putin and the Return of History, which is so Martin Sixsmith, who's an ex-BBC journalist, has written a fantastic account of the historical context for what's going on between Russia and Ukraine right now, and the complexity, the depth, the sorts of decision making, uh, and the errors on all sides, you know, that have led to this, um, and also just the you know the kind of venality of leaders. Uh, it's a it's a cracking read and very very well researched and put together. Brilliant. Thanks so much, Mike. I should let you get on with your day, but it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks, Henry. Thanks for uh, having us on. I appreciate it. A huge thank you to Mike for letting me pick his brain, as well as his always acute analysis of the industry as a whole. Lots more to come in future episodes, including interviews with some of the specialist companies in the synthetic space, the new subject of behavioral learning models with Element Human, the influencer economy with Whaler, the Insights family who've just completed a new funding round, client-side perspective from Sky, and the latest on the next gen of creative testing and measurement with Human Made Machine. 
Thanks again to Mike and Insight Platforms for their support and to you for listening. See you next time. Thank you.